Good evening and welcome to Navarra Live. My name is Aaron Bastani. Tonight I'm joined by Barnaby Rain live from New York, New York. Barnaby, how are you? I am delighted to be here, Aaron, uh, in need of a haircut. I'm told by people I respect, but um, other than that, I'm very happy to be with you. Well, we're big fans of your hair here on Navarra Media. We think it adds real intellectual credibility to uh, somebody I have to say that is, is frequently asked for Barnaby. There was a bit of a conspiracy theory amongst our, our audience. They were saying, where's Barnaby Rain? What have you done with him? Well, he's back. And I'm very happy to be the one hosting this evening. Tonight, we ask whether refugees are becoming prisoners. One of Britain's elite institutions is engulfed in scandal. A Tory MP has been suspended after finding themselves center stage in a media sting. And transphobes attack the girlfriend of Harry Potter because she's, well, it's not quite clear why, but more of that later. First story. The government's strategy on asylum seekers has been pretty transparent. First, you refer to them as illegal then you treat them like criminals. And suddenly the window of what's acceptable shifts, including imprisoning them on ships. The government has now confirmed that 500 asylum seekers will be held on a giant vessel moored off the coast of Dorset. This is the Bibby Stockholm. It's usually used to house oil or offshore cargo. But the Tories have leased it to house asylum seekers in Portland port for at least 18 months. The Home Office has described the accommodation on the 220-bedroom barge as, quote, basic, with some healthcare provision and catering facilities. There will also be, quote, 24-7 security in place on board to minimize the disruption to local communities. In other words, 24-7 security to keep them on the barge. Now, technically, the boat's residents will be free to go ashore, but only to enter the port. The Times reports this. Local sources who have worked in the port said migrants would need to be taken by bus from the barge to the port entry every time they want to leave because it was a heavily restricted and high security area. It's the same as an airport. All visitors have to be escorted. They will go in and out on a bus, a source said. They'll effectively be treated like prisoners. It's not the first time this ship has been used to house asylum seekers. The Netherlands tried it, but that turned out to be something of a disaster. The Independent reports this. The Bibby Stockholm was used to detain asylum seekers in the Netherlands in the 2000s, but was taken out of service after an undercover investigation by a Dutch newspaper uncovered mistreatment by prison officers, rapes by migrants, and fire safety failings. Several migrants imprisoned on ships in the Netherlands are reported to have died, including an Algerian man on the Bibby Stockholm in 2008. The government's rhetoric on asylum seekers has been so effective that even journalists are lapping it up. Rose Minister Richard Holden appeared on Sky News where Kate Burley asked him this. Is this going to be cheaper? Because there are some suggestions it's not. So my understanding is that that's exactly the plan. Is that A, it's going to be cheaper, B, it provides more of a deterrent, and C, it means that you're not going to impact those local communities as much because you're going to have more of those facilities provided on site. You say with, that. We've seen they were those... playing we've seen the pictures in the paper this morning. They can play pool, they can go to the gym, have a wild time. Well, I think what we want to see is that done in a controlled environment as far as possible um, so that we can manage those situations and manage those people through the asylum and immigration okay. process. They can use a gym. They can play pool. They'll have a whale of a time. 
So the implication there is that because the asylum seekers will have access to some leisure activities, heaven forbid, while they're imprisoned on a barge, it should be said, somehow they're being offered accommodation. That's better than they deserve. Lucky them. This is exactly the kind of thing right-wingers say about prisoners, which is precisely what the Tories want. And just by the way, this is from a woman, Kay Burley, who found it so hard to cope with staying in her own enormous house during the COVID lockdown, she broke the rules by throwing a birthday bash. Remember that? But Kay Burley isn't the only journalist who seems to think asylum seekers should be grateful for whatever they get. For another show, Lou Calvi spoke to Talk TV's Julia Hartley Brewer when this happened. They have to go somewhere, even if it's just 500 of them. I mean, what's the issue? I mean, you know, obviously, I I don't support putting people on boats. Why not? Uh, but there are lots of people who choose to live on boats. People go on a holiday on cruise ships. For goodness sake. Absolutely, I've I've got a canal boat myself, Julia, and I enjoy it. So very you've much. got a canal boat. I've this got is a canal boat. But you choose to do that as a, a treat for yourself on a holiday. I do. But but, but it's terrible but for an asylum seeker to yeah, go on a barge. Julia, that's that's my choice though. It's my choice to have. Well, it's a holiday their choice to come here. It's probably better I, than being in a camp, living outdoors <laughs> in a tent in Calais. What can you do? Apparently, being on a prison boat is the same as being on a ten thousand pound cruise going through the Caribbean. For Julia Hartley Brewer, there's no fundamental difference between the two. Barnaby, explain to me how the British media finds itself reaching ever higher levels of cruelty. There has developed a deep and sudden nautical interest. The government and the right-wing media are really obsessed with boats. They want to stop the boats, they say, when uh, <laughs> some of the poorest people in the world, some of them fleeing British bombs, um, uh, get on unsafe dinghies because there are no safe and legal routes available unless you happen to be a Ukrainian or a Hong Kong British national or have direct family members. There are virtually no safe routes available to most people in the world to get here. So people get onto unsafe dinghies in which they're risking their lives and are attacked by the government for doing so, having committed no crime but merely fleeing persecution. The government says it wants to stop the boats. Then when they get here, the government wants to put them on a boat. Um, the, the arrangement for this barge uh, is that local residents have been promised that people on it won't be using any local services. How? Because they'll be imprisoned, not on the barge itself, the government says, but in the port. These are people who have committed no crime and are simply fleeing for a place of safety. The government is obsessed with boats. The right-wing media is obsessed with boats. But only some boats... You know, if you happen to be a bit of a masochist, you might sometimes pick up a copy of the Daily Telegraph and leaf through it. And when you do, you'll be reading a publication owned by the billionaire Barclay Brothers. Well, the Barclay Brothers own a big boat. It's called the Lady Beatrice, and it costs $30 million. That's a boat I'd like to stop, because if we took it, perhaps we could use it to ship people who need safety uh, onto our shores. Perhaps we could sell it and use the money to build the homes and the schools and the hospitals that people in this country need. So I'm all in favor of stopping some boats, but the government is highly invested in making us forget that the people who have the money that we need to support our communities don't arrive by migrant dinghy, they arrive by private jet and super yacht. And it's no coincidence the government wants us to forget that. One of those people, of course, is Rishi Sunak. You should pay attention to how they treat refugees because it shows you how they would treat the rest of us if they could get away with it. There is a campaign afoot in Britain to try to win the Conservative Party an election after over a decade of economic incompetence 
incompetence, destroying the social wage by smashing our public services, breaking Britain and tearing communities apart. Now they want to win an election only by turning people who are who have no um, conceivable economic hope uh, for, for the betterment of their lives from the Tory party, turning those people against other uh, more marginal and, and vulnerable and desperate people. They want to turn us all against trans people, as we'll hear later in the show. They want to turn us all against migrants and refugees. The truth is that 86% of refugees go to the country nearest to them. The truth is that France took three times as many asylum applications as Britain did last year. The truth is that Britain is not, in other words, overwhelmed by a disproportionate number of people coming to our country. But when guards... Indian and Nepali guards who guarded the British embassy in Afghanistan. One of them was injured in 2016 in a suicide bomb attack. When those guards come to Britain, the British government imprisons and tries to deport them. So there you have it. That's how empire works. They go all around the world, causing havoc and violence. And when people try, Shivananda and the great Black Marxists used to say, we are here because you were there. When people try to come to a place of safety after Britain wreaked so much violence and havoc all over the world, those people are then imprisoned, treated like vermin um, and deported back to conditions of danger. That's how the British Empire works. And it's the same kind of contempt with which they treat all people that they can get away with. It's the same kind of contempt with which they treat workers cleaning up Downing Street parties while the elites uh, uh, spread the virus. It's the same kind of contempt that they treat workers who they won't give unions to. It's the same kind of contempt they treat kids on the street stopped and searched by the police. Everyone who isn't a person of power and privilege, who isn't allowed to prance around like Prince Andrew, abusing kids and then getting away with it, everyone who doesn't come from that kind of power and privilege is treated with contempt. And it's time we realise that the way they treat refugees is indicative of the way they view everyone who isn't from the ruling class. So Barnaby, what, what would you suggest people do? Because this is uh, a major shift in terms of refugee policy. Um, but it's also in many ways very popular. It's important to say not with locals. So wherever uh, it's being supposed that people are detained, we're looking at several hundred people here in Portland, Dorset. Locals don't want those people there. So, so what's the solution then? Do you think that there needs to be a broader argument around humane conditions to these people while appealing to these local communities saying, you don't want this for very different reasons to us, but perhaps there can be some sort of coalition to stop this happening because it, it, it's a very strange one we have local people probably aggrieved for very different reasons to why you and I might think this is a bad policy uh, and yet as a national policy cruelty towards refugees is one of the few areas where the Tories probably feel relatively safe up against Labour going into the next general election. Yeah, I mean, they, they, it's a classic right-wing strategy, which is if you can't make people's lives better, you can make them punch down. You know, in the 1980s, it was what the Conservative Party did about gay people, for example. Um, uh, now, through years of struggles, um, at least some uh, maybe white gay men have, have, have become sufficiently acceptable in the political mainstream that they can't be attacked in that way. So it takes years of struggles to take people out of that coalition of the attacked and the abused uh, by the Tory party whenever they want to win votes. But it is just a game. It's not actually a serious policy. There are almost 170,000, I think it's 166,000 people um, in the immigration asylum backlog in Britain. This barge that they're proposing would house 500 people. So that's 0.3% 
percent. Um, so it's a gimmick designed to be splashed across TV screens to the consternation of local residents in every area where they propose one of these prisons, obviously. Um, but but to show the rest of the country that they're serious about a problem, which in fact they can't stem by constructing endless prisons. Uh, for a start, the bill, if they really wanted to imprison all of those 166,000 people waiting uh, to be to, to hear if they'll get a place of safety, the bill would be enormous. So the answer is very clear. It's to ensure safe and legal routes so that people can apply for asylum before they leave um, uh, and can uh, can apply in third countries uh, or can apply when they get to Britain. But having taken a safe route to travel to Britain, there are currently no such safe routes. We're talking about a fraction of the number of people um, uh, in terms of the amount of resources that they would consume uh, than the number of the, the number of resources that this government will happily uh, splurge on, on, on tax cuts for their wealthy friends. Um, we're talking about people who are coming to work in our National Health Service, not people who are coming to destroy it, as the government's done. And we're talking about people who want to be able to live and work in safety so that they're not pushed into an undocumented black market where they don't have union protection and where they can then be undercutting everyone else's wages. So this is a strategy of, um, of, of fragmenting and attacking the labor market so that people have to compete with undocumented workers um, receiving worse conditions. It's a strategy of targeting people's venom and anger anger against helpless people rather than against the people who've actually destroyed our society. There are more than enough resources in Britain to take people in need, to give them safe routes to travel here, which is exactly what we would all want if we were ever in conditions of precarity and danger where we needed to flee our home. No one walks towards a boat unless the sea is less frightening than the place they're coming from. So it's time that we give people that kind of safety and recognize that the resources involved in giving people housing, and for a start, people want to come and work, um, but the resources involved in protecting people are infinitely less than the resources involved in uh, that are thrown around every every second in in tax giveaways to to, to the corporate uh, billionaire friends of the Conservative Party. Next story. The Confederation of British Industry, often called the CBI, is Britain's most powerful business organisation. It claims to speak for 190,000 businesses, but in recent years it's found itself mired in controversy. In the 1990s, it wanted Britain to join the euro. Then, in 2014, it registered with the Electoral Commission to campaign against Scottish independence. It broadly supported austerity until it was clear that was a failure, and then it didn't. And it relentlessly attacked Labour under Corbyn while trying to stop Brexit well after the public voted to leave. But recently, the CBI has been hit with a series of explosive revelations. Early this month, its General Secretary, Tony Danker, had to quit amid allegations of misconduct. And now there are other claims of rape, sexual assault, and other inappropriate behaviour against a number of its senior managers. The Guardian reported this earlier in the week. More than a dozen women claim to have been victims of various forms of sexual misconduct by senior figures at the Confederation of British Industry, including one who alleges she was raped at a staff party on a boat on the River Thames. The women who all work at the CBI or have worked there in recent years approached The Guardian with fresh concerns about what they describe as a toxic culture at Britain's most influential business lobbying organisation. Some of their claims are corroborated by more than 10 other current and former employees and form part of an expanding investigation that has plunged the CBI into its biggest crisis since it was founded by Royal Charter in 1965. It goes on to say this. As well as the alleged rape, the new claims against different men also include allegations of an attempted sexual assault by a manager at the same staff boat party in 2019, a senior manager sending explicit images to junior female staff over several years, 
other senior managers behaving unprofessionally and inappropriately towards much younger female colleagues. Alleged instances include a former board member touching a female employee's bottom and making what was seen as a sexualized remark to another woman about her appearance within earshot of several colleagues. A manager propositioning women after they felt he'd pushed them to drink more alcohol while they were already drunk. And then finally, and I found this really jaw-dropping, frankly, widespread use of cocaine at official CBI events. Now, remember, this is the organization held up as the voice of business in Britain. These are meant to be some of the most serious, respectable people in the country's establishment. Danker's resignation and these other allegations have led to the CBI commissioning a report from private law firm Fox Williams. They hope to have some preliminary findings shortly after Easter. Now, in the meantime, the organisation is isolated, no doubt about that. Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey has withdrawn from their annual dinner next month, as has Labour's Lisa Nandy. Meanwhile, the government and the Labour Party have put any engagements with the CBI on ice until that investigation is complete. But all of this has led to a rather stunning question. Is it time to abolish the CBI? Ben Marlow, chief city commentator at The Telegraph, writes this. It's time to abolish the anti-Brexit business elite. Fresh allegations expose the hypocrisy of corporate Britain's obsession with ethics. Muller reports that just days before his resignation, Danker gave a speech about how business must embrace progressive values. He goes on to say this. It goes without saying that the allegations are a fatal blow to the CBI's desperate efforts to promote itself as a champion of progressive values and diversity. They expose the hypocrisy, not just of the CBI, but corporate Britain's obsession with talking about ethics endlessly and to the point of tedium without actually practicing what so many preach. Later on, he says this. There is now a broader question to be asked about whether the CBI has outlived its purpose. The organization presents itself as the voice of private sector Britain. There has long been a sense that all it really does is stand up for a few vested interests that pay the largest fees, such as the big banks and supermarkets. It's everything that's wrong with the corporate establishment today. The CBI masquerades as pro-growth, but too often gives the impression that it's in hock to its members' interests. That's right, Britain's most powerful business lobbyist is now being attacked by the Daily Telegraph. And it was that line about the CBI only standing up for big banks and supermarkets that caught my attention. This isn't Navarra Media saying this, which we do, by the way, quite frequently. It's one of Britain's most pro-business newspapers and who back the Tories every day of the week. Barnaby. What does it say about Britain that everyone who's serious in politics is meant to take the CBI as this hugely authoritative organization, and yet they're doing, allegedly, cocaine at their own official events? Aaron, I admire your attempt to keep a straight face while pretending to be surprised that Britain's leading business people are taking cocaine at their events. Um, I, I think that anyone who's read the news about what's found in parliamentary toilets and uh, uh, all over the British ruling class will not be very surprised. Obviously, these are the same people who want to imprison uh, poorer and darker people for doing all the same things that they do. And that's really the general model. Um, what it means to be a business leader is to make a lot of money um, by exploiting the labor of others. And so to think that you have some kind of a right to the money that they don't have. Um, that's the kind of culture of entitlement that produces a situation where a woman uh, reports that she was raped 
um, goes to her CBI colleagues to try to discuss this and is told by those colleagues not to take the matter any further because the model is this is not the kind of space in which people who are abused and harassed and humiliated have space and the ability to find a reckoning. This is instead a culture where people who can trample over others do so with total freedom. That is the culture of British capitalism. It's the culture that took British capitalism all over the world, doing great damage and devastation uh, from Ireland to India. And it's the culture that spawned the Industrial Revolution and child labor here in Britain. I I shouldn't say here, I'm speaking to you from America, uh, a place that's also known lots of suffering and child labor. Um, That's just the culture of capital, if you like. And, um, And so the fact that they've now called an investigation, which won't actually report to the CBI's executive, but to a separate non-executive body without the same kinds of powers, is just evidence of how um, uh, these institutions think that they can take this stuff not particularly seriously, because they know that the power that they wield in British society does not depend on positive newspaper headlines. So perhaps now that they're in the headlines negatively for a few days or a few weeks, some government ministers will pull out of their events. But the power that they wield heralds from the fact that they represent organizations employing enormous numbers of people. Um, uh, They sit on huge amounts of cash and therefore the state has to take very seriously their threats, for example, to pull operations out of Scotland if Scotland votes a way that they don't like or to pull operations out of Britain if Britain votes a way that they don't like. Um, This is the kind of class power that these organizations wield. The CBI is a trade union. It's just that trade unions of working people exist to take people who don't have that much power and authority and command over the conditions of their lives and try to give them some power and authority and command. Uh, This is a trade union of people who already control a huge number of resources, and not just resources, but control people's lives. And we see this in the way that that, that women who come to report sexual harassment are treated with contempt by the organization, they claim, we'll have to see the report. And we see it too in the way that employees are so often treated by bosses, uh, that that a boss has control over you, because if the boss doesn't like what you're doing, and and the boss can find enough reason, they can get rid of you. Um, So this kind of power Um, that lies at the heart of capitalism, the power that bosses wield over workers, the power that big companies wield over supposedly democratic states who need their revenues. This constant, undemocratic, concentrated power sums up the CBI. The CBI is a union designed to protect that power. And that's why, of course, working people need unions designed to confront it. But here's the thing, Barnaby, and I think it gets to the heart of this story, is that that union for the capitalist class is now being attacked by the city columnist for the Daily Telegraph. And that is obviously intriguing, and that's, and that's relatively new. So what does that tell us? Because that's the equivalent of the industrial correspondent for the Morning Star saying that, you know, uh, the leadership of a trade union uh, needs to stand down, or worse still, actually, let me reformulate that, that the trade union should be dissolved. That's what he's saying. Um, so what are your thoughts there? Because that is new, and obviously it comes in a broader context of calls that were made by the CBI with regards to Brexit. Are we looking at a certain civil war that's ongoing still within the establishment that doesn't seem to yet have come to an end? Well, I think Brexit clearly provoked a divide within the British capitalist class, um, which partly tracks onto real differences in class interests between different fractions of capital, uh, between those who, for example, are in finance and so rely on passporting rights that the City of London has uh, to the rest of Europe so that banks locate in, in London rather than choosing to locate in Paris or Frankfurt because they can benefit from British common law and those, those rights of access to the European common market. So if you're a big financier, then, then, then you depend on, you, you believe at least depend on access to the European Union, whereas some exporters who want free trade deals to, uh, to, 
to India, for example, um, and don't care as much as the Tory party's voters may that what the Indian government wants from those deals is lots of visas. Uh, but if you're a British exporter who wants to sell cheap goods to India, then then you think that you might have an interest in coming out of the European Union. So there's just been a real uh, material divide, too often articulated simply in cultural terms, but a divide of, uh, partly of class interest between different sections of the British capitalist class. Of course, that also takes the form of a kind of cultural difference between people who imagine themselves, who love Tony Blair and imagine themselves as cosmopolitan, and people who love Nigel Farage and imagine themselves as nationalists. Um, uh, and, and the CBI represents the first half of that of that divide. So there's absolutely a kind of real divide in the British capitalist class, just as there are often divides in, you know, in, in, in all class uh, fragments in, in British society. But in that sense, the Daily Telegraph choosing to have a go at the CBI is kind of opportunistic, as, as you're noting. They, um, over, over the question of Brexit, um, have a um, have a real disagreement. I think what that disagreement highlights, the thing that's important here, is the kind of stasis and crisis of British capitalism. And you saw it really in the Liz Truss premiership, where there was an attempt to uh, redo the kind of aggressive 1981 uh, Thatcher era uh, uh, shock and awe strategy in which you, uh, you, you, you smash the economy briefly in order to try to reconstruct it. Um, and after 10 years or more of austerity, the economy was in such a, a, um, a stagnant, declining public services in such a crisis position uh, that they just couldn't pull that off even with their own uh, membership or, or supporters in parliament. Um, so there is this problem that British capitalism is in need of a reinvention strategy. It's faced decades of stalling productivity. Um, uh, its strategy for dealing with that has been to uh, redistribute more and more wealth from below, so to take uh, uh, the social wage by destroying public services um, in order to cut taxes for the wealthy, and now to try to recap, uh, to try to recoup money from wages, to try to take workers' money uh, by um, by having below inflation pay rises. So the only strategy that British capitalists have really, amid a lot of talk of supply side investment, um, is actually to uh, redistribute from from below to above, to try to take from poorer people, to try to sustain profit rates uh, for those at the top. And they know, I think, that they're in a kind of crisis. And Brexit was one project in a strategic reorientation of British capitalism that's gone very, very badly. Um, and so there is a kind of uncertainty. And of course, sections of British capital always knew it was likely to go very badly. Um, there's a real uncertainty about the direction and the future of British capitalism at a moment, unfortunately, when no one in our mainstream politics is willing to say this or, or talk about it or say that perhaps there needs to be some kind of uh, a different strategy, uh, even a kind of minimally social democratic strategy that would invest in green energy, for example. Um, and, and provide jobs that way. Those kinds of actually quite moderate Corbyn era proposals that could have come from the Social Democratic Party of the 1980s, never mind the Labour Party, um, are so lacking in a British politics that is so uh, wedded to an ideological image of free markets above all else, even more than the early Blair years were, uh, wedded to an image of total free market subservience, that this crisis of British capital, um, low productivity, not knowing how to uh, invest productively, um, and so um, sluggish rates of growth. There's, there's no, uh, amid climate destruction and the need for a politics that looks beyond growth in any case. There's no attempt to, to reckon with those questions. And so instead, you see capitalists taking different sides in a kind of civil war without much direction. Next story. Scott Benson is the MP for Blackpool South. Until yesterday, he was the Tory MP for that constituency. But now the party has stripped him of the whip after he was caught apparently agreeing to break parliamentary lobbying rules in exchange for cash. Benson was caught out when Times journalists went undercover, posing as representatives of a British Indian company interested in investing in the gambling sector. Benson has long been an advocate of loosening restrictions on gambling in England, and has even campaigned for a license to build a super casino in his own constituency. He's also chairman of the All Parliamentary Group for Betting and Gaming. 
The journalists were tipped off by a Westminster insider that, despite a series of lobbying scandals, MPs were still keen to pocket the cash of private companies in exchange for parliamentary favours. The Times reports this. Betting companies have launched an extensive lobbying campaign in Westminster, spending more than £180,000 on corporate hospitality for dozens of MPs since 2021, mid moves to toughen regulation to tackle problem gambling. A much-delayed white paper setting out the government's proposals for legislation is expected to be published after the Easter recess. To test the allegations that MPs were prepared to break the rules, the newspaper set up a fake company complete with a logo, website and office addresses in London and Chennai and contacted eight MPs by email. MPs were told the investment fund was seeking an expert advisor because of concerns about the turbulent political and regulatory landscape amid a significant review of gambling laws. They said that gaining insight from policymakers is a key part of our strategic investment strategy. The work would take a day or two a month, they were told, and there would be a compensation package. Benton took the bait. Meeting the journalists over a cup of tea, they explained that they were looking to invest in the gambling sector and wanted, quote, behind-the-scenes knowledge of how gambling regulation might be changed. What, they asked, could Benton give them that a lobbying firm couldn't? It was his response. That's a very good question. Um, probably the director of a minister who's actually going to make these decisions. So um, two different, I'll, I'll be entirely honest, I'll speak as a non-politician, mm -hmm. having worked in PR in the past. Mm. Um, PR agencies are absolutely great. Uh, they have established set contacts. Um, they know how to work the room, etc. The one thing they don't have is direct access to a government minister. Mm. We vote in House Commons two or three times a day. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll be voting later. Um, you will literally stand at the beginning, at the entrance to the voting lobby, and if you wait there for five minutes, the minister has mm -hmm. to pass you. Mm -hmm. And then you've got ten minutes while you walk around to the next vote mm -hmm. to have his ear. We can obviously put parliamentary questions mm -hmm. on the table, mm -hmm. so PCMS questions on Thursday, so we can ask things in a direct manner okay. in public to see if the reaction we get is consistent with what we get in private, which mm -hmm. isn't always the case. Mm. Uh, there's written questions as well where we can table things on the public record and get an instant response within five working days mm. on any question whatsoever, which obviously nobody else uh, um, outside the political realm can. Now, tabling a question in Parliament for a private firm in exchange for money, even if the MP declares an interest, is a breach of Parliament's rules. But to prove his claim about tabling questions for private firms, Benton took out his phone and appeared to show the reporters how he'd done it before. Oh, there we go. Two weeks ago, 17th of February. So um, there's a written question. So that was sent in on behalf of one business, essentially. Right, where am I looking at the topic? This, this yeah. one here. The Office of Product Safety and Standards um, conducted an investigation into regulators for repeat, repeated breaches of the regulator's code. And within five days, you get a full answer. Right, great. In, in uh, response to that answer as well, you get a private note from the minister, yeah. which sometimes tells you information he couldn't put in the public domain. And you don't need to say with that, it wouldn't be public that we've asked you to do that. It would just, they, you just get the response and... I'd have to declare an interest. Right, okay. Um, but I wouldn't have to declare what the interest is. Right. So as long as I've gone on the public record and say, I'm declaring an interest because I may be connected to 
an yeah. operator in the gaming world who's yeah who's uh, who I've had contact with in the past. They got him good, huh? But Benson wasn't just answering questions. He had some ideas of his own about how he could help the fake firm gain an advantage. Meeting with advisors, mm -hmm. I think, is urgent. Meeting with the minister himself, Stuart or Lucy, mm -hmm. uh, would be absolutely fantastic, although probably less likely than meeting Stuart, who's the direct minister responsible. And tabling some written questions to try and flesh out the government's intentions mm -hmm. on X, Y and Z and then probably writing something more formal and having me sit down with the minister and go through it line by line. I've supported other colleagues, particular asks in meetings mm -hmm. when they've spoken to company X, Y and Z, and I'm mm -hmm. sure they would return the favour as well. All that money and he still wears an awful tie-shirt combination. Another breach of the rules there, MPs are banned from giving instructions on how to influence Parliament. Now, if you're a private company looking to invest in the sector, it can be very handy to get advanced knowledge of the details of proposed government policy. And that's where the conversation went next. Would, we, would it be realistic to get advanced sight of the white paper, for example, when it's sort of finally decided or anything on those lines? Uh, probably. Um, that would only be a number of days, so... Okay, so that would still be useful for investment. Yeah, for a bit of a fence site. Absolutely, I could guarantee you would get within 48 hours of publication, for example. Before I, publication? Yeah, I would yeah. make some of that to make sure that happened. Great. Unbelievable. Soon the question of money came up. What sort of, uh, and do you, have, do you have a figure in mind, what, what sort of conversation would you be looking for? Um, I would leave that to you. <laughs> we must have made to, to I mean, we were thinking probably in the range of two to four thousand pounds a month, um, but um, I think that sounds in the right ballpark. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Now, we need to be clear here. Benton didn't actually break any parliamentary rules. He simply said that he would for a few grand a month. And it may be that Benton also turned himself into the parliamentary regulator. In a statement, Benton said this. Last month, I was approached by a purported company offering me an expert advisory role. I met with two individuals claiming to represent the company to find out what this role entailed. After this meeting, I was asked to forward my CV and some other personal details. I did not do so as I was concerned that what was being asked of me was not within parliamentary rules. I contacted the Commons Registrar and the Parliamentary Standards Commissioner, who clarified these rules for me and had no further contact with the company. I did this before being made aware that the company did not exist, and the individuals claiming to represent it were journalists. But if he didn't break any rules, why has Benton had the whip withdrawn? Tory Chief Whip Simon Hart released this statement. Following his self-referral to the Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards earlier this evening, Wednesday, Scott Benton has had the Conservative Party whip suspended whilst an investigation is ongoing. We know that, that corruption is, is endemic in British society. We had the Casey report recently into the Metropolitan Police, in which, which was full of so many horrific revelations that the fact that the police force was found to be widely corrupt was barely even covered. That's the state we've reached. And we recently had up to £10,000 a day offered by fake companies to Matt Hancock, Kwasi Kwarteng, Graham Brady, leading Conservative Party politicians, former health secretary, former chancellor, head of the 1922 committee. These are people with enormous power uh, in the apparatuses of the British legislature and the British state taking cash for influence or at least trying to do so. And of course, a few journalists mocking up a sting 
can only really scratch the surface of what must be happening all the time when corporations who are better at doing these things privately and quietly get to politicians. And it's one of the reasons that democracy and capitalism make for such awkward bedfellows. If you have high degrees of economic inequality, the people with money want to keep their money. They want to use the state to help them keep their money. And they'll spend a bit of money, which is a tiny amount of money for millionaire and billionaire corporations. They'll spend that money uh, ensuring that they keep their privileges and power. What are the real world effects of that? Well, Public Health England estimates that gambling, problem gambling, costs Britain £1.27 billion a year. That's money in healthcare costs and in housing costs, in, in ruined lives that the state and communities then have to pick up. So we, taxpayers and others, pick up that cost, £1.27 billion a year, uh, in devastation being wrought by companies who pick up big profits. 60% of the profits of big gambling companies, 60% of the profits, and almost 90% of the gambling yields come from just 5% of problem gamblers. So this is how they work. They start by getting people in with low stakes betting, sometimes loss leaders, betting on sports usually. And then they push people into slot machines and casino games, which are higher stakes, uh, a lower likelihood of, of reward for the customer and generate big money for the gambling companies. That's why during the pandemic, they were able to move this model online and make huge amounts of money. The owner of Ladbrokes saw its core earnings rise 11% uh, in 2020 alone to 850 million pounds. Um, uh, 800 million of that came from a 50% surge in online gambling. So what these companies are doing is sucking money out of the high streets where they locate themselves or out of people's bedrooms and people's homes when they move online, sucking money out of often working class people, often people who don't have that much money, pouring it into uh, uh, the real boats that the government doesn't want to stop, which is the yachts that go to the owners of big companies. Uh, that's where the money is being pulled from working class communities across Britain. It's ending up uh, in redesigns for those fancy yachts uh, of the people who own these companies. Um, and then the people who own the companies lobby politicians successfully to ensure that they're not regulated. That's the kind of racket of British capitalism, constant redistribution from the bottom to the top, because British capitalists don't have any kind of coherent growth strategy except that sort of parasitic redistribution. Scott Benson's apparent willingness to accept cash for influence might spell the end of his parliamentary career. At any rate, with a majority of just 3,690, his Blackpool South constituency is one that Labour will be keen to take back at the next election. So, will he be missed? Let's have a look at his record. Personally, if it was down to me, I would bring back the death penalty for a small number of cases. I'm not afraid to say that, and that's a view favoured by the majority of the British people. <clears throat> Abortion is an issue for me. I remember one of the first public speeches I gave was at university uh, to pro-life audience on the issue as well. Um, so obviously people have their own different views on abortion. But my concern is sometimes um, we speak about people's rights in society, um, but sometimes the most vulnerable of all people and human beings within society is sometimes forgotten. And there's nobody more vulnerable than an innocent unborn child as well. Our public services are already creaking under enormous pressure and we simply can't accept hundreds of millions of people who would no doubt look to come here for a better life. I am afraid this country is nearly full. The Human Rights Act handed power to unelected judges both at home and abroad, meaning that Britain remains tied to a foreign court. 
The creeping power of the courts is directly interfering with the government's ability to conduct its business, not least in preventing the Home Secretary from combating the unacceptable numbers of illegal immigrants crossing the Channel. In light of this, does my right honourable friend agree with many residents of Blackpool in thinking that it's time we scrapped the Act altogether? But I believe that supporting this motion gives a green light to the intransigence of the Palestinian Authority and the terrorism of Hamas in Gaza by suggesting that the current policies of the Palestinian leadership befit a sovereign state, which they do clearly do not. What we have seen over a number of years now are hard left wing fruitcakes gluing themselves to bridges, gluing themselves to trains, gluing themselves to roads and stopping 99% of a taxpaying yeah. public getting to work and going about their daily business. You know what? It couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Next story. Child benefit is a welfare benefit paid to the parents or parents of children in the UK. For the eldest child, it's around £24 a week. For a second child, that falls to £15.90. So any parent in receipt of the maximum amount available is looking at around £180 a month. Now, that's just child benefit. It doesn't include certain other benefits that a parent might be entitled to. And that limit on child benefit only applying to the first two children. You get nothing after that, no matter how many children you have, was introduced under Chancellor George Osborne in an effort to get down the deficit and cut the national debt, remember that? But it's now having massive consequences, specifically for the poorest families. The Daily Mirror reports this. The Tories' cruel two-child benefit limit is having a devastating impact with widespread hardship and parents struggling to meet their kids' basic needs. The Child Poverty Action Group says today the controversial cap, one of ex-Chancellor George Osborne's austerity measures, has played a big role in rising child poverty. The Child Poverty Action Group estimates that 1.5 million children living in families are subject to the limit, including 1.1 million growing up in poverty. A rolling survey by the organization shows the number of families impacted by the policy who report it has affected their ability to pay for food has risen. In 2021-22, the figure stood at 78%, but today, six years after the policy was rolled out, new figures show it's climbed to 87% in 22-23. That's a huge rise in one year. The rate among non-working households has consistently reached 90%. So the two-child limit for UK benefits is now affecting 1.5 million children, more than a million of which are in poverty. And by the way, of those million kids, 58% of them are in households where somebody works. Here's The Guardian. The cumulative impact of the limit, which means that parents cannot claim child tax credit or universal credit for any third or subsequent child born after April 2017, meant it could eventually affect about 3 million children, with families losing out on up to £3,235 a year. Submissions from 3,000 plus parents who have taken part in an ongoing CPAG survey about the two-child limit found that in the last year, many more families had struggled to pay for power bills and food. According to the report, abolishing the limit would cost £1.3 billion a year, and this could lift up to 250,000, sorry, and this could lift 250,000 children out of poverty, with a further 850,000 in less deep poverty. But is there much chance of the Tories scrapping the cap? It seems unlikely. Here's Scottish Tory MP Michelle Ballantyne saying in 2018 that Osborne's reforms 
were fair. The two-child limit is about fairness. It is fair that people on benefit cannot have as many children as they like, while people who work and pay their way and don't claim benefits have to make decisions about the number of children they can have. Fairness is fairness to everybody, not to a one part of the community. Barnaby, the number of children in poverty rose by 350,000 last year. Is scrapping the two-child cap for welfare benefits a good place to start in dealing with that? Clearly, it's not a good place to start if you wanted to reduce child poverty, because while a quarter of children in Britain uh, now grow up in, uh, 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 or over a quarter uh, now grow up in poverty, the figure is half, almost half, uh, for people from black and ethnic minority groups. We know that children in larger families are at far greater risk. So uh, over 40% of children uh, living in families with three or more children, over 40% of those kids are growing up in poverty. And that is directly, in part, caused by the uh, benefits cap, the, the child benefit cap. So it is a policy that is pursued in the knowing uh, consciousness that it will result in more children growing up in poverty, because if you take money away from people who already have very little money, um, that will mean that their children uh, don't get as much to eat. It will mean that their children grow up in colder homes in the winter while energy bills soar. This is all known when politicians who take cash from gambling companies to lobby for their interests, who take cash from fictional companies overseas uh, just to pad their own bank accounts, walk through the parliamentary lobbies and vote to remove money from the poorest families in the country. They know know that they will push those families into poverty. The Child Poverty Action Group has told them very clearly again and again and again. Between 1998 and 2003, reducing child poverty was a, a target of, of the new Labour government for all its problems. The number of children in poverty fell by 600,000. It's easy to do if you give people the public services that they can rely on without having to pay for things like free childcare, for example, uh, a gimmick policy only half announced by this government. Um, if you give people money uh, rather than taking it away from them, we know how to get people out of poverty. One way not to get people out of poverty is by repeating the same mantras about how they have to pull their bootstraps up and get into work in a climate in which there are not jobs for people and the jobs that do exist for people are low-wage, insecure, precarious jobs. Most children growing up in poverty are growing up in a family in which at least one adult is working. So the endless moralizing attacks, which, which uh, treat a system that can't afford to feed and clothe and house people, and then blames those people for their own lack of food and clothing and housing. The endless moralizing attacks which say you should just work harder and get a job and then maybe your children uh, uh, would have better lives don't match up at all with the, with the current reality of British capitalism, in which people are working, they need to supplement those wages with state support because the government has constructed a system, whether it's in housing with housing benefit or in welfare with with, with child benefits and tax credits. The government has constructed systems over many years. It was New Labour that really uh, pushed this dynamic in which the state will subsidise low pay and, and, the, and the profits of both bosses and landlords. That's been the, the, the private, public, state capitalist uh, toxic nexus. And what the state now does is pull away its side of that nexus so that bosses are still paying low pay and precarious jobs. Landlords are still charging high rents. Energy companies are still causing bills to soar. But the state pulls away support and so ensures that, that uh, poorer people are left even more desperate and profits continue to flow to those at the top. That's the dynamic of class politics going on here. It's a conscious attempt to make people poorer, um, uh, or at least it's done in the conscious knowledge that it will make people poorer. Now, this is a story which has really exposed some contradictions on the right. These people want bigger families and for people to have more kids, 
but they also want people to not have more kids. Martin Daubney appeared on GB News earlier this year. He was asked whether he thought the two-child cap was the right policy. I think it is. So I've got two kids, and when it came to have my second child, I really, really thought long and hard about, can I afford this? Can I afford a second child? I'm really grateful that I did have my beautiful daughter, Dolly, who's probably watching. Love you, darling. But um, I, I just think that we have this this split of position on those who work hard and pay their way and those who get the, expect the state to pay their way. And I think Jeremy Corbyn, Kel surprise, wants more people dependent on the state, more people to vote for Labour parties because they're getting handouts. And I think it sets a bad precedent. We see this rolling into public housing stock, council housing stock. And I think there's a huge problem with benefit dependency in the UK. We have 8 million people currently not in work. And I think setting a dependency culture at an early age sets a template for life. And I don't think we should be going down this route. I think where we are at the moment is just about right. Jeremy Corbyn writes again, who knew? Meanwhile, disagreeing with Martin Daubney, here's the Times last year. Britain's baby shortage is everyone's problem. The falling birth rate is spawning serious economic and social problems. Helping to fix it is a government responsibility. So we have children in poverty, often in families who work, and we want a higher birth rate. Seems like a simple solution here is scrapping the, the cap on child benefit. But maybe I'm being silly because trying to isolate an obvious solution isn't really what we do in Britain anymore. Barnaby, £1.3 billion. This is extraordinary low-hanging fruit when it comes to child poverty. We've got, I think, 250,000 kids potentially brought out of child poverty just by spending £1.3 And hey, the right might even stop talking about what we can do to alleviate the falling birth rate. They might even try and do something about it. Well, they're not going to stop talking about the falling birth rate because that's a dog whistle racial anxiety. Uh, they're worried not about the world losing people, but about uh, the world losing uh, white people in Europe. Um, and, and there you see evidence of some of the uh, most worrying currents still present in right wing thinking. Um, but of course, they just don't have any interest in using money to alleviate child poverty, just as they don't have any interest in using money to rescue a health service that's on its knees. Um, and which could take a big injection of cash to ensure good pay for doctors and nurses to attract people to the sector uh, and to ensure enough beds to treat patients when they're in them. But instead, they'll let these services run down into crisis and then complain that they need, uh, or rather delight in the claim, that they need uh, to rethink the model of health provision in this country in the same way. They'll allow children to suffer in great poverty and then attack their parents and say that they're just not working hard enough, that they're lazy. We'll get, we'll get TV shows like Benefit Street, who remembers that, uh, designed to make, uh, to make us all think that the poorest people are responsible for their own poverty. Um, uh, it's very convenient. What you do is you, you trash the country, you trash public services, you trash people's living standards, and then you say there's a crisis. Those people are to blame for their falling living standards. And so what's the solution? To squeeze them even more. It feels like chutzpah, but that is the right-wing strategy. There are so many simple bungs of cash. They could stop spending money on, on, a, on a nuclear weapons system and instead spend it um, on, on rescuing public services and taking kids out of poverty. They could stop cutting taxes for massive corporations and rich people who don't even think they need those taxes cuts um, uh, and, um, and could spend the money um, instead on hell. They could borrow whenever they want to fight a war or a pandemic, they borrow. Uh, but when it comes to the social emergencies, the humanitarian emergencies of people's poverty, they can't do that. Um, they forget their elementary Keynesianism that only comes out when it serves their class interests. So there are so many easy ways to fund the things that Britain needs 
Uh, the problem is not a lack of clever solutions. The problem is interests. The problem is that the kinds of people who run the country uh, uh, are getting paid by gambling firms to ensure that those gambling firms can suck money out of high streets and communities. Um, and, and they're not getting paid to ensure that uh, the poorest people get uh, taken out of poverty. That's just not what they're in the game for. That's just not what their uh, salaries paid to them for as far as they see it. This idea of birth rates being purely a dog whistle, and I sort of have to push back on that a little bit because... You know, about half the planet today has a birth rate below 2.1, which is just the, the, the replacement rate, stand still. And what you have when you have a birth rate significantly below 2.1, which, which we don't, but some countries like, say, Hong Kong or more to do, is that you have fewer and fewer taxpayers, working age population to pay for a an older population, because of course, as well as having fewer children, people are living longer. Not everyone, because of massive wealth inequalities, but a significant number of people. And... If you talk to average people out there in their 30s, 40s, they would actually like to have more children. So data has been collected on this. People would like to have more children, but they, they can't afford it. The incentives simply aren't there. So I was sort of pushed back on that a little bit. Like there are big policy problems heading our way because of demographic aging at the same time as a shrinking working age population. And it just so turns out that people would like to have more children, but they can't because of our sort of objective economic circumstances. Broadly speaking, the number one is, by the way, housing then it's the cost of childcare. So I, I'm not quite sure I agree with you all the way there, Barnaby. Given we agree on virtually 99.999% recurring of things on politics, could you just clarify your thinking a little bit there quickly when you say that it's a dog whistle? Because some people watching this might not, might not understand what you mean by that. The falling birth rate has been tied up with uh, a right-wing panic about grace, about great replacement theory at its hardest edge, which says, um, which says, oh dear, uh, the white birth rate in in European countries is falling much faster than birth rates of migrant communities and also uh, people in, for example, sub-Saharan Africa, South America. Um, though, though there are also some falls in birth rates there, and so you have right-wing propagandists, kind of agitprop like people like Douglas Murray, um, who who whip up a great stir about falling birth rates, and I think it's kind of a code for a racial anxiety. Two responses there. First, Firstly, exactly as you say, if they were really worried about falling birth rates, um, they would give people the material support which is necessary uh, to ensure that they uh, that they can uh, have kids. But also, if they were really simply worried about falling birth rates, they might want an open-door immigration policy to bring into Britain loads of people who are having lots of kids. Um, but of course, they don't want that. And so all I'm highlighting is that a lot mm. of the worry about falling birth rates is really a coded racial anxiety. Final story. Transphobia is currently rife, both online and in real life. While it largely affects trans people, and perhaps trans women especially, anti-trans activists are coming for cis women too. Suzanne Seddon is an author and producer who tweeted this. This is Daniel Radcliffe's Harry Potter girlfriend. Now what do you see? That tweet has had over 6.3 million views. Of course, it's going up all of the time. Why? Because of the pretty clear implication that Daniel Radcliffe's girlfriend of nearly 11 years, Erin Dark, is a trans woman. Probably also relevant is that Daniel Radcliffe himself has been a vocal supporter of trans rights. Here's one exchange between Seddon and someone in her replies. You don't have to be a wizard to figure that one out. That ain't no woman, that's a man baby. Quality. Laughing. Now, Dark isn't a trans woman. In fact, just two weeks ago, the couple announced they're expecting their first child. And Seddon's tweet isn't by any means the first of its kind. Transphobes regularly hound cis women who aren't, by their standards, sufficiently feminine, going on to suggest that they're trans. And this clearly shows something about transphobia and gender-critical ideology. Of course, transphobes hate trans women, 
but they hate cis women who don't conform to their ideal of femininity too. Policing and enforcing an arbitrary boundary of womanhood based on appearance or any other property as transphobes do will inevitably mean excluding the very people they claim to be standing up for. Barnaby, feminists who claim to want to protect the interests of cis women are now openly mocking how those women look. Make sense of this to me. Well, I think there's a slight red herring in uh, media focus in Britain on what gets called TERFs, trans exclusionary radical feminists, because there are many more TEPs trans-exclusionary people, TEPs, uh, than there are TERFs. So we know that a lot of funding for uh, anti-trans campaigns, which have really reached a kind of fever pitch in the United States, uh, where I'm speaking to you from, uh, it's become a kind of central moral panic. So that even when Donald Trump first ran for the presidency, he had very little to say about attacking trans people. And now it's one of his leading themes. It's become a kind of central war on what they call woke, uh, which is a war on on, on all sorts of groups of people uh, who can be easily harassed. Um, More than half of transgender and non-binary kids have considered suicide, uh, according to a big 2021 survey. The war on those people, pushing those people uh, towards thinking of suicide, is funded heavily by a lot of religious right-wing organizations in the United States. And so the the radical feminists become a kind of convenient foil. People who have all kinds of long-standing anxieties about about gender become become a useful foil for a right-wing attempt, which is important to acknowledge because the right-wing attempt is not about abolishing gender, uh, which some TERFs might think they're about, but is in fact about reinstantiating gender binaries, is about an anxiety, a kind of panic about the breakdown of those gendered binaries. And this is a very old story. You know, more than 100 years ago, the reason that Rosa Luxemburg uh, exhibited so much, uh, elicited so much terror in the eyes of the European ruling classes was that she was a revolutionary who was a Jew, a communist and a woman. And so there was so much terrified proto-fascist propaganda uh, when when, when she was murdered uh, about the horrors of of, of women joining the labor movement, joining socialist and communist politics, uh, leaving the home and insisting that it was their right to change the world. The breaking down of gender roles has long been a terrifying spectacle in the image of conservative thinking. The patriarch in the home is the elementary image of power and authority from which so much else in our society derives. And so the breakdown of gendered authority has always terrified conservatives. And trans politics represents a kind of a frightening thing now because it can represent just as gay politics did in the 1980s. It can represent a challenge to a rigidly organized gender binary. And if you challenge that hierarchy, then you're challenging a basic hierarchy on which so much else in society relies. That's why Kemi Badenoch, as the kind of trailblazer standard bearer for the loony hard right in the Conservative cabinet now, um, pushes an agenda of trying to change the Equality Act to ensure that she can remove trans people from access to um, single-sex spaces, which would mean that people who had surgery decades ago, perhaps, people who have lived entirely as the gender that they identify as, would now be forced to occupy, women would now be forced into male bathrooms where they can be harassed by men uh, and told that they're actually the real villains um, as they're forced into those male bathrooms bathrooms because though they've identified as a woman for 30 years, Kemi Badnock decides she can win some Tory votes, policing a gender binary by attacking those people while kids are pushed towards suicide. That's why the Equality and Human Rights Commission stuffed with Tory appointees because the Conservative Party has treated uh, uh, non-governmental bodies uh, uh, close to government like the BBC and the EHRC 
um, as its playthings to ensure it, it furthers its agenda. That's why the EHRC can 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 lend Kemi Badenoch support on um, on on potentially narrowing the rights of trans people and changing the Equality Act. Can say it seems like roughly a good idea. What we have is a few feminists lending media cover to an overwhelmingly right wing campaign to police a hierarchy in our society, which is what the right is always about, and further remove rights from kids who are sitting at home right now worrying about whether they can survive, who have much higher rates of homelessness and, and of suicide um, because they're targeted, persecuted and attacked, including by the state and the media. I mean, on a basic level, I don't know when a woman thought it was feminist to attack a woman for not looking the way she wants her to look. Put it that simply, really. Barnaby, as ever, you have been dynamite. The baton from Manhattan. Thank you for joining me this evening. It's been a pleasure, Aaron. It's great to see you in the chair, looking extremely smart in your jacket, I have to say. I feel very outdone by you, but you're looking good. And thanks everyone for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow night for another live stream from 6 p.m. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.